He is risen. Amen. So there's a, a question that's asked in every Jewish household at Passover every year. And the question is, why is this night so different from all other nights? In other words, what, what makes this day so special? And it, it offers the opportunity for uh, an explanation of God's rescue of his people out of Egypt. Well, I think we as Christians ought to ask that question about today. Why is today so special? What, what's the big deal? Because the, the answer to that question is paramount to our faith. Let's pray. Lord, as we today take time here, coming together to celebrate the, the amazing victory that you won, we're inviting you right now to speak into us in your own inimitable way your truth, that it might grip our hearts anew and afresh here today, that we might be more in love with you when we leave here, that we might be more fully and solidly grounded in our faith when we leave here because of what you do right here in this time. Lord, have your way in us. We're opening ourselves, we're willingly right now, intentionally opening ourselves to you and inviting you to work in us. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about the resurrection. And then just a, a few verses later, he says, remind them of these things. Remind them of these things. I don't honestly think I'm going to tell you anything that's all that new or profound today about the resurrection, but I think we often need to be reminded that we need to remember to think back because these things are so very important. This is the high and holy day of the Christian church year, the Easter, Resurrection Sunday, whatever term you want to use for this. It, it, it's different. It's the, it's the day that gives all the other days meaning, really. But before we get into Easter, we need to look back a little bit. Before we can get to the resurrection, I think we need to look at the cross because it's at the cross that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And sin is... Is, is not a common word in our culture. It's not politically correct, if you will. We don't like to talk about that, but the, the simple fact of the matter is that every single one of us, you, me, person sitting next to you, the person sitting in front of you, the person sitting behind you, every one of us has sinned. All have sinned, according to the Bible, and fall short of the glory of God. The only person that never sinned was Jesus who came and lived a perfect sin, sinless life. Everybody else has failed. And we need to understand that because, because sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates us from God. It takes us away from him. The uh, Bible says the wages of sin is death. It says the soul that sins will surely die. Uh, because we have sinned, what we deserve is punishment, and not just punishment, but eternal punishment. You know, oftentimes people ask me, how you doing? My, my pretty common answer is, well, I'm doing a lot better than I deserve on my own. Because the fact of the matter is that what we deserve on our own is eternal separation from God. Hell, if you will. And, and, and it's because of our sin. And if you don't understand the, the sin issue, then it's easy to begin to think that all religions are pretty much the same. You know, my wife is just finishing in her Christian instruction class in, in our high school uh, a section on world religions. And I can tell you for sure 
that uh, Buddha's enlightenment idea or Muhammad's grit your teeth and try harder are not going to address the sin issue that we have of separating us from God. They're just not. There's only one remedy for sin. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. That's why the Bible says there is no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. Only Jesus, the perfect son of God, could redeem the world, and he did. You know, the Bible talks about Jesus being the, the lamb of God. And most of us, you know, that seems... All right, we as Christians, we get kind of that idea because we've talked about that before. But, you know, if you just talk about Jesus being the Lamb of God in our culture, that's like a foreign concept. Because what is that? You know, most people in our culture don't raise lambs. They don't, they, and they're certainly not familiar with Jewish theology. So, so what does that mean? So think about it. The, the book of Exodus tells us that, that uh, there was a lamb, two lambs every day slain at the temple, according to, to uh, Exodus 28. But then during the Passover, that number went way up. Like conservative estimates are that tens of thousands of lambs were slain every year during the Passover. Um, and when a, when, a, when a lamb was sacrificed, one of the priests would blow the shofar, the ram's horn, indicating that, that a lamb had just been slain as an offering for people's sins. Okay? So think about that, Dan, tens of thousands of I'm just thinking about their lips, sorry. Uh, but you, you, need to, you need to see this. <laughs> sorry, the, the things that go through your mind at the most inopportune times. Um, you need to see this whole thing in context because most people in Israel didn't raise their own sheep. But when they went to Jerusalem for that pilgrimage, for the Passover, they had to have a lamb that, to, 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 uh, for, for the sacrifice. And so what they would do is they would go there and buy a lamb. Now, so I want you to imagine with me for a minute. Suppose that you're a child in one of those families back there in first century Israel, okay? You're maybe, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years old, something like that. And you're there and your family gets to Jerusalem and so you need a, you need a lamb and so you get a, go to the nearest lamb lot, you know, Shecky's Sheep Shack or something like that. Um, and so you, you go there and you, you buy a lamb, and, you know, dad has to haggle over the price, and so you're, you know, you're waiting until that's done. And, and so, so they get the lamb, and you finally get in line at the temple for, to, to go in and, and have the sacrifice made. Well, if you think the lines at Six Flags are long, I mean, think about it. Tens of thousands of lambs in that short time. The line's got to be, like, you know, way out. All right, so so you're, you're there. You finally get to the front of the line, and if dad or the, the priest does what they are supposed to do, they are explaining to you as that little child that what's happening here is the sins that you have committed are being put onto that lamb. Give me that next slide. You, that, that lamb is taking your sins and because of that, God is offering you forgiveness. So nearly every Jewish kid would have heard that Year after year after year, okay? That would have just been part of... They, they saw it played out every year. So when Peter talked about the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb, the people knew exactly what that meant. When, when Paul said, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, they knew what he was talking about exactly because they had seen it played out again and again. It's what I said earlier. Our, our sin separates us from God. 
And so Jesus uh, bridged that chasm, if you will, by paying the penalty of our sin and taking upon himself. He was the, the lamb that was slain on our behalf. The theological term for that is substitutionary atonement. Now, I know that's two really stinking big words, all right? But let, let me break it down. The, the word atonement, the dictionary definition, is reparation for a wrong or an injury. So, so think about that. I don't know, the, the kid next door cuts your, your garden hose. So in order to make that right, he should, eat, he should uh, you know, obviously he should repent. He should say, I'm sorry for, for doing that. But he should also... Um, uh, buy you a new hose or at least repair the one that, that was cut. You with me? So he's making reparations. So sub, that, that's atonement. So substitutionary atonement means that somebody else, not the guilty party, but somebody else is making those reparations. That's what Jesus did. Substitutionary atonement. He took our sins upon himself. He paid the penalty so that we could go free. So the cross was all about. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we are still sinners... Christ died for us. Someone recently said that according to the Bible, there are three great transfers. Adam's guilt to us, our guilt to Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness to us. And it said, if you think, if, if you think that number one is unfair, look at number three. Because that's really unfair. And yet, we get it. We get forgiveness because of what he did. And understand this, Jesus wasn't killed. He willingly laid down his life. John 10, it says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. All right, so let's move forward. Jesus has died. We're going to read from Matthew 27. Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, I don't know about you, it's probably just my overactive imagination, I see, you know, I'm looking at this particular scene, not from the perspective of those people that are there, but from heaven. And I think at least on some level, this has to be at least a little bit comical. I mean, maybe, maybe Michael leans over to Gabriel. I need that next slide. And, and if, you, if you Google two angels laughing, this is the first thing that comes up. I'm sorry. I just had to use it. So maybe Michael leans over to Gabriel and says, I, I, I recognize that, um, th that they're sealing the tomb and they're posting a guard. I recognize that, that, that they think the disciples might steal the body, but they clearly have no idea who they're really dealing with here, right? No clue at all. And the fact is that you and I, we can make fun of this, but think about it from the perspective of Jesus' disciples. They had seen him. You can get rid of that one now. They had seen him hanging on the cross. They had seen him die. I have to think that at least some of the conversations from, from the time that he died until the time that he rose again are, are between the disciples are like, what are we, we going to do now? Everything, everything had changed at that point. Think about the, think about the conversation between the two guys on the road to, to Emmaus 
uh, one of them said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had pinned their hopes on this guy, Jesus. They had, they had walked with him. They had seen him teaching. They had seen him healing people. He was the, he was the, the guy that they were hoping was everything. He was, he was the one that, that they had hoped was going to not, not only redeem Israel, but, but to, to separate it from Rome, if you will. Everything here had changed. They had pinned their hopes and their plans and their dreams on this guy, and now he's dead. He's gone. They must have been devastated. Maybe they cried. I would have. Maybe they cried for a couple of days. But at some point, at some point, grief starts to subside, at least some. And I have to wonder if it was perhaps at that point that the unthinkable happened, that he rose from the dead. Matthew 28. And behold, there was a great earthquake. We heard this earlier. For an angel for the, of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. What a scene. You know, I'm guessing God just said, hey, go. Angel went. Earth shook. Stone rolled away. The guards are just paralyzed with fear at that point. And understand that the stone rolling away wasn't so Jesus could get out. He's already gone. It's so the, the people could see in that he wasn't there. And don't ever let anybody tell you that Jesus was just faking his death. There was no question that Jesus was dead. The, the, the soldiers knew it. The Jews knew it. The people that put him in the tomb, they all knew it. That was a truly inconvenient truth. But then together, the, the Jews and the, 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 the Romans came up with this idea, let's tell people that the disciples stole his body. Crazy idea. You probably know the name Chuck Colson. Charles Colson was one of President Richard Nixon's closest advisors. He was one of the, the, the people that came up with the whole Watergate idea, the thing that caused Nixon to resign. Colson said this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And it's true. If you have any doubts about that, there's plenty of, of good evidence out there. Read uh, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or The Case for Christ, or The Case for Easter, from Lee Strobel. I don't want to spend any time defending that idea, but I do, I do want us to consider kind of a, a parallel idea, if you will. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, it says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. That's a serious statement, isn't it? If Jesus is still in the grave, then our preaching and your faith are both useless. That's what he's saying. Think about it. What if, what if the resurrection didn't happen? Think about you and me telling people about uh, the, the, the ramifications of the good news without good news. We, we don't have any good news. All we have at that point is bad news. I mean, if we go to somebody and tell them, because of your sin, you are eternally separated from the Father. You're going to spend eternity in the bad place. And maybe they come under conviction because of what we say. And they say, 
What do I do? How do I avoid the wrath of God? At that point, all you and I have are, hey, good luck with that. If, if, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, we've got nothing. But if Christ is raised from the dead, that changes everything. And Paul goes on to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Yes, he has. Great story about Michelangelo, the, the artist. Apparently one day he, he tore into his fellow artists because they kept painting Jesus on the cross. And he said this, why do you keep filling gallery after gallery with endless pictures of the one theme of Christ in weakness, Christ on the cross, and most of all, Christ hanging dead? Why do you concentrate on pa that passing episode as if it were the last work, as if the curtain dropped on him with disaster and defeat? That dreadful scene lasted a few hours. But to the unending eternity, Christ is alive. The stone has been rolled away and he rules and reigns and triumphs. I love it. Amen. It's not just about the crucifixion. The resurrection says we win. Yeah. Great preacher Charles Spurgeon said it like this. Beloved, the dying Christ has purchased for us our justification. But the risen Christ will see that we get it. I like that. 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. Stop right there. When you and I enter into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we, the, the perishable, are putting on imperishable. We, we, the, we, the mortal, are putting on immortality. So this is talking about us here. Okay, so, so what happens when we do that? Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because Jesus rose from the grave, you and I don't have to fear death. We have something far greater. Death is only a temporary issue for us. Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death forever. He will swallow up death for a little while. No, forever. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Amen. So, so why, do, why do I believe in the resurrection? Well, obviously, because the Bible teaches it. If I believe that the, the Bible is the word of God and it teaches it, that's what I'm going to believe. But there's also another reason that I believe in the resurrection. And that is because I recognize that the risen Christ is still changing lives today. Let me just tell you a few stories. A woman named Anne Lamott wrote a book entitled Grace Eventually. She said that she didn't come to Christ through a leap of faith. She said for her it involved several misguided staggers. I like that phrasing. Let me read you just a little part of her testimony. On the seventh night after my abortion, I discovered that I was bleeding heavily. I thought I should call a doctor, but I was so disgusted that I'd gotten so drunk one week after my abortion that I couldn't wake someone up and ask for help. I got in bed, shaky and sad, and too wild to have another drink or take a sleeping pill. After a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. Of course, there wasn't. But after a while, in the dark again, I knew beyond doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this. I was appalled. I thought about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian, and it seemed utterly impossible. That simply, something that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. 
I felt him just sitting there watching me with patience and love. I squeezed my eyes shut, but it didn't help because it wasn't my eyes that were seeing him. I finally fell asleep, and in the morning he was gone. The experience spooked me badly, and everywhere I went, I felt as if there were a little cat following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. And when you, when you let a cat in and feed it a little milk, it stays forever. One week later, I went to church. I was so hungover I couldn't stand for the songs. This time I stayed for the sermon. I thought it was ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song, the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. I felt as though the presence of God was washing over me. I began to cry. I raced home and felt the little cat running along at my heels. I opened the door of my house and I stood there for one long minute. And then I hung my head and said, I quit. I took a deep, long breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. The risen Lord had sought her out and drew her to himself, not because of anything she had done, but because he was patient and loving and caring. She didn't even want him. And yet, he got a hold of her heart. A man named Alexander Ogorodnikov was born into a prominent fam atheist family in Russia in 1950. He became a leader in the, the Soviet Union's pro-Lenin youth movement. He was a, a student at Moscow's Institute of Cinematography, and it was there in, in 1973 that he encountered a film entitled The, the Gospel According to St. Matthew, and it was through that film that the risen Christ gripped his heart. So, so here is this, this young leader in the Communist Party who scandalized both his parents and the government by converting to Christianity. Apparently, he was expelled from the school for trying to create a film about the Christian life. And he went on to become sort of a, a thorn in the side of the, the communists. He organized a small group of fellow or, uh, Orthodox Christians and began campaigning for religious liberty. And it was because of that that the Soviets in 1978 sent him to prison. They wanted to make an example of him because he had renounced all his Communist Party privileges for Christ of all things. So they placed him on death row in one of the Soviet Union's hardest prisons, a, a place where, according to one of Ogorodnikov's captors, the state sent people to be broken to bleed you out drop by drop. Ogorodnikov said this, when I went into the cell and looked at the others who were there, I told them, listen, brothers, I was sent here to help you to meet death, not as criminals, but as men with souls that are going to meet their maker, to go to meet God the Father. And he did that. He helped them to be ready to meet their maker. And when his captors realized that having him there on death row with other prisoners wasn't really changing him, they put him into solitary confinement. But that didn't help either because the guards would come to him wanting to confess their sins, looking for forgiveness. So, so think about such a, such a radical transformation. Here is this guy who is born into an atheist family that, that is fully in favor of the, the reforms that Lenin is doing there in the Soviet Union. He's become a leader in the Communist Party youth movement, standing shoulder to shoulder with his peers in, in, the, in, the, in the Communist Party. There is no way 
to explain how that could happen, how that such a drastic life change could happen, that, he, that he's thrown into prison before he's 30 years old because of his Christian convictions when he, he had had everything going for him. There, there's no way to explain that except that he encountered the risen Christ. I mean, some, from a simply logical perspective, that's insane. But if Jesus is raised from the dead, it makes all the sense in the world. One more story. Rosaria Butterfield was a lesbian, leftist, atheist, tenured professor. If the topic of Christians and Jesus came up, she'd use words like stupid, pointless, and menacing. She was clearly not a fan of Christ followers. At the t same time, though, she described her own life as happy, meaningful, and full. So it was right after she completed a major publishing project that she was working on that she decided to turn her sights toward researching the Christian community, what those people believe, and what she perceived as their hatred toward people like her. But she realized that if she was going to do that, then she was going to have to read the one book that, from her perspective, put so many people off track, the Bible. And so she did it. She read the Bible. And in her own words, she ended up reading the Bible the way a glutton devours food. She read it several times, cover to cover, in one year, in multiple versions. But then something began to happen. Her lesbian partner and other close friends said that reading the Bible was changing her. Rosaria's response is pretty amazing. She said, what if this is true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we're all in trouble? And then she began to have interactions with Christians, not, not demeaning Christians, but people who showed her love and kindness and compassion. In a very real and tangible way, the Lord drew her to himself. The very idea of that went against, totally against everything that she believed and stood for. She didn't want it to happen. But she found out that Jesus was far too compelling. In her book, The, the, the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Conversion, a Convert, she tells this, her story, um, her, her story of her conversion and the subsequent story after her conversion. It's amazing read, really, but again, there's no way to explain that story from a worldly, logical perspective. A tenured university professor who said that her life was full and happy, but she gave it all up and pursued the one thing that she had totally detested. That's crazy until you realize that she realized there was something, someone better, the risen Savior. You know, I could tell you more stories. You could, some of you could tell me some of your own, I'm sure. There are millions of people out there right now who have been changed because of the risen Savior. That's not to mention the ones that have already gone on to glory. Those people's lives wouldn't have been altered had it not been for the risen Christ. He's alive. 2 Corinthians 5.1 For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from, from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I want you to think about what this does not say. does not say uh, in those first few words that we think, for, for we hope, for we believe. No, no, it says, for we know. Every translation I checked said, for we know. 
not a guess, not a hope as in our culture's perspective of hope. No, we know because what Jesus did, dying and rising again, that we have eternity with God. I find it interesting that Muhammad said he didn't know where he was going. In the Quran, Surah 46.9, Muhammad said, I am not something original among the messengers, nor do I know what will be done with me or with you. Contrast that with what Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, and where I am, that where I am, you may be also. Totally different scenario. That's why Isaiah said very clearly, he will swallow up death forever. Peter, in his great day of Pentecost sermon, if you will, he said, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not po of course it wasn't possible. He's God. Book of Revelation, Jesus declares, I am the one who lives. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and to the place of the dead. Jesus has conquered the grave. Because of that, you and I have eternity to look forward to. 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He also appeared to me. Jesus is alive. We don't need to be afraid of death. He will swallow up death forever. You know, honestly, if you look at that, that scripture, Isaiah was 700 years before Christ. So if we're going to be technically accurate on that scripture today, he has swallowed up death forever. It's already a done deal. We don't have to be afraid of death. You know, I, I look forward to death, not with, with fear, but with anticipation. And don't, don't misunderstand. I don't want to die. It might be painful. I get that. At least it might be painful for people that I leave behind. But the fact is, I know what's on the other side. It's not some, some long, dark, scary tunnel with some ominous door with a question mark on it at the end of the tunnel. No, 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 no. I know what's over there. The one who went before me, the one who went to prepare a place for me, he is waiting there and he has granted the same thing to you. Someone said the Son of God became Son of Man. So sons of men could become sons of God. I love that. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You are a child of God because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has drawn you into his family. He has given you eternity along with people like Anne Lamott and Alexander Ogorodnikov, Rosaria Butterfield and so many more. We are the recipients of His grace because of His death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that You sent Your Son to redeem us, to take us from, from death to life and to give us not just life here and now, but life eternal. Lord, thank You. Thank You that this day of all days we can celebrate and rejoice because of what You have done. Lord, we are so grateful for your mercy in our lives. Thank you. Amen.